ため Uh, hi, my name is, uh, is Jeff. Uh, Vaney referred me. Oh, you must be here for the megaphone therapy. Well, come on in and lay down. Take a load off. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know about laying down. I'm skeptical this will even work. Of course it will. It's megaphone therapy. I invented it. Why wouldn't it work? Well, I don't know. The megaphone part, for starters? Look, it's simple. You've heard of primal scream therapy, right? No. That is where you scream and feel better. Okay. Well, this is megaphone therapy where I hypnotize you and scream at your unconscious mind to scare out the bad memories. See, primal scream therapy, you're screaming out. But with megaphone therapy, I'm screaming in. Is it safe to have you screaming at my subconscious like that? Clositively. Because it's me, Dr. Stephen Greer, and you know, It's time for you to just relax, stop expending all that pent-up energy, and let me be your energy. Let me be your free energy device, Jeffrey Ritzman. You can trust me, I'm a doctor! Yeah, yeah it, an emergency room doctor, they're not a shrink. But this is an emergency! Now ask yourself, is there a doctor in the house? And then answer yourself, yes, there is. Me, Dr. Stephen Greer. Now lie back and let me inside of you. Fine, let's just get this over with. Good. Are you relaxed? Relax enough, the music helps, I guess. What music, anyway? Now just shut up your eyes. I'm going to count back from five, and when I hit one, you'll be asleep. Five. Getting sleepy. Four. Getting sleepier! Three. You're mildly retarded. Two. You're Michael Thala. <laughs> And one. You've joined the tea party. Are you asleep, Jeffrey? Alright, alien memories, this is the South Police! We've got you surrounded! Come out with your balls cupped! Man, this is disgusting, this isn't therapy, I knew it! I, I knew I couldn't trust Vaney, I'm gonna fucking kill him! Vaney? I thought you said Chaney. He loves it when I yell dirt at him. Gives the old bionic monkey heart a push. On November 5th, 1975, a group of loggers in the mountains of northeastern Arizona observed a strange unusually bright light in the sky. One of those men, Travis Walton, recklessly left the safety of their truck to take a closer look. Suddenly, as he walked toward the light, Walton was blasted back by a bolt of mysterious energy. What happened next depends on if you've read the book or seen the movie. <laughs> Unfortunately, the book from which I am reading off the inside flap is Fire in the Sky, The Walton Experience, written by Travis Walton, our very special guest. Well, this book is from many, many moons ago, and he is now re-releasing Fire in the Sky. I don't know if it will have that description inside of it. I wish I'd known um, what he tells us during the interview, which is that first editions of his book were going for like two or three hundred bucks. I could have stood to make two or three hundred bucks, but what the hell, I've still got the book and... 
I love the book, and you can love it too if you don't own it, if you haven't read it, and you want the real deal, you just uh, go to www.travis-walton.com, and you can purchase it directly from the man himself. Or you can go to one of his speaking engagements, which are also listed on his website. Here is the one man that could reunite Jeff and I for a very special episode of Paratopia, Travis Walton. Paratopia, without further ado, um, there, there are two people in all of ufology that, um, at least I I, I, I don't know if I'm speaking for Jeff, but I have always wanted to interview, and, and one of them, of course, is uh, Jacques Vallée, as you all know. The other is our guest tonight, very special guest, Travis Walton. Uh, Travis, thank you so much for uh, for doing this little chat with us. Yeah, good to join you. Now, you're probably sick of telling your story uh, because you've told it eight million times, but I, I think it's just maybe it warrants one more telling because I think when people hear your name, they immediately know a man who was abducted for a few days out with loggers, beam of light hits you, they take off, and then they sort of fill in the blanks with what they saw in the movie uh, nine times out of ten, at least. That's been my experience. And then I have to tell them, no, that actually didn't happen. So why don't you, if if you're not sick of telling the story, um, set the record straight on what exactly happened to you, and then we will uh, probe a little bit deeper. Well, um, to start with, there were seven of us in the truck uh, rather than six like in the movie. But... Um like in the movie, we had finished a day's work and were headed home from work. They had everybody looking kind of drowsy like they'd been driving a while, but the truth was we'd just barely finished some hard physical labor and we were wide awake and everybody was talking and we were uh, driving along the ridge, south up the ridge towards the rim road. And um, the uh, road was sort of paralleling the ridge back, which was a little bit higher and off to our right. And uh, we noticed this light coming through the trees. Nobody said, oh, there's a light, and started talking about it immediately. You know, uh, it was just kind of like everybody was talking, and one by one, they quit talking and started looking in the same direction. So it's hard to say who saw it first, but, but it wasn't all that uh, remarkable at first. It was just a few glimmers of light through the, uh, you know, making their way through the thicket. And uh, at first I thought uh, maybe somebody was camping up there because it was deer season, and, and we'd been hearing shots in the in the distance during the day, work day. And so um, I could see up ahead where there was a break in the trees and, and the light from this thing was crossing the road. And so hurry up, Mike, let's get up there and see, see what this is, because by then everybody's saying, what is that? You know, Some of the guys said later that they thought it was maybe like a, a crashed airplane hanging up in a tree because... Gradually, it was becoming apparent that the light was coming from too high up to be campers on, on the ridge top. And so when we uh, burst into this clearing, there it was, hovering uh, less than 100 feet from the road. And it was not some hazy ball of light in the distance, not some point of light in the sky. It was uh, a metallic disc hovering less than 100 feet away. And uh, I yelled out, stop the truck. And uh, one of the guys in the back, I believe it was Alan Dallas, yelled out, it's a flying saucer or it's a spaceship. Because that's how totally <laughs> plain it was what it was. Uh, 
But uh, my thinking was that this thing was going to take off and be gone in a flash. Because, you know, that's the way it is a lot in the woods when we're driving along and you catch sight of a wild animal, a fox or bobcat or something, and you tell the guys, hey, look, and before they can even look, it's gone. You know, they're like, if they don't turn their head and figure out where you're pointing real quick, they'll miss it. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my thinking that this thing would just be be gone and, and I'd miss a chance to see it. And so that was a lot of the reason I got out and, and headed towards it. But uh, one of the crewmen was was being interviewed on a show that I was on, and he said it looked to him like I was just being, you know, sort of hypnotically drawn toward it. But you know, I didn't feel that I was being compelled in any way. I was at first just curious, and I have to admit, kind of showing off for the rest of the crew. Well, and was everyone I, in hysterics, or were they all silent, or what was... Well, they were. They immediately started to say, well, uh, we're alarmed by what I was doing, but, you know, that just kind of uh, egged me on, and I was kind of showing off for them at first, and then I was kind of embarrassed to back off, although I left the truck pretty fast, I slowed down pretty quick, thinking, what am I doing here, especially since it didn't leave like I thought it would, and so the closer I got, the more the sound began to affect me and uh what was the sound well it's a really strange sort of uh, cyclic mixture of tones really high and really low I'll probably across the whole spectrum of frequencies kind of off off the range of human hearing on the on the high and the low end but um the guys said that they could feel it through the truck you know it's uh, it's kind of, you know, some of the tones were, you could feel more than hear. It was that powerful. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so I slowed down as I got closer to it, and those guys were getting more and more frantic. The, the, they said later that it seemed like something was about to happen. Now, I don't know, you know, sometimes people, in, in hindsight, you know, kind of, you know, just remember things that way, but... uh Right, but there was kind of an ominous, especially you know when it started to move, and the sound got louder. You know, it did. It did sound like, you know, it sounded much more threatening. Plus, they were getting much more frantic and, and swearing and yelling at me to get out of there. You know, so that part of the movie was pretty accurate. But when it started to move, I jumped for cover. You know, I was alarmed by that, and. Uh, there was this pile of logs uh, there in front of me, and I got down behind one of those, and I went into a crouch. And so well, they kept yelling at me, get out of there, run, run. And, and so, you know, I really didn't need to be told. I was trying to figure out how I was going to get myself out of the situation because I felt that I was in danger, you know. When you heard the noise, was it uh, something that you immediately heard when, say, you rolled down your windows or or whatever you did originally in the truck, was it always present when you were near the object, or did it just turn on when you got out of the truck? Uh, I guess it was always there. And um, when it moved, was it moving in response to anything, or did it seem like it was just randomly moving? Well, it 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 rose up. It, it was kind of unsteady, but, you know, it, it was a kind of a like a rocking motion, like the way a top does when it's spinning. Mm-hmm. But it it wasn't spinning around. The same side was towards us uh, the whole time. But 
when I uh, decided I'd better get the hell out of there, just like they were saying, I, I rose up to go, and I came out, out of my crouch, and at that point, my upper body and chest was at the closest point that it was to this object. So I don't know whether that triggers some kind of a defense weapon or if it was just a coincidence that they fired at that time. I'm thinking that most likely it, w it would be something as like a side effect of the, them powering up and, make, you know, the sound getting louder. They were starting to move away and that that was some kind of a like a maybe a static discharge or something, some kind of energy um coming from the craft just because you know they were increasing power well in the movie it looks like a beam hits you did it was that what it looked and felt like or did it you know that's one thing in the movie that was rarely played down that you know it, it was so pathetic in the movie it looks kind of like a little spotlight comes on and then just tosses the actor back but it was much more violent than that the guy said that it just lit up the entire forest brighter than daylight and that um, it was like a blast, like a stick of dynamite just threw me back through the air. And they said the way my body tumbled and hit the ground all limp, that they, several of them yelled out, it got him, it killed him, he's dead. And that was what triggered the panic for them to screaming at Mike to, to get out of there. They said they just, you know, drove like... A maniac and, and dang near wrecked the truck and as a matter of fact they did some damage to it just getting away did the blast knock you out yeah i was unconscious immediately and then what's the next thing you remember um i came to real gradually i was in a lot of pain uh, i was lying on my back first i didn't know where i was at all and uh Then, then I remembered, you know, approaching that object in the woods, and I thought that maybe somehow I'd been hurt, and uh, that the, the crew had taken me into the hospital. I thought it was in the emergency room. And that, there was this a lot of clues that made me think that way. Um, the pain I was in, and this thing that was across my chest. And uh, I could tell I must be on a raised surface because the nearness of the ceiling and the light above me but um i could hear the sounds of movement around me but it just it hurt for me to move and i i was having trouble breathing and i didn't really just come to real clearly and and figure all this out in a few instances it, it took quite a while it was like in and out is real hazy and i was having trouble focusing my eyes and getting getting two images to to work together and but when i when my vision finally cleared i saw that these weren't doctors that this these were these creatures standing over me and i just totally flipped out was it an immediate sort of animal reaction that you had or was there any sort of thinking involved there was no thinking i just you know uh lashed out or i was i was so weak it was more of a push I flailed out with my arm and pushed the one that was closest away from me. And he fell back into the other one. And uh, I rolled off the table. And that thing they had on me fell off. But uh, 
he seems softer and, and, and lighter than I expected. So the, the scene in the movie where, uh, you know, the character peels off some sort of webbing and comes out of this little cocoon-like thing, that didn't happen? Nope. Okay. And uh, what did the beings actually look like? Well, they were, you know, they changed that too, but uh, it wasn't a, a huge change, you know. Um, they were still three and a half foot tall, I mean, little humanoids, you know, but... Uh, they were actually much uh, whiter in color and had these huge eyes. And uh, actually, their their features were closer to human than they depicted them in the in the movie, but definitely not human at all. They were hairless, uh, had huge heads. But do you remember what they were wearing? They were all dressed alike, just some kind of coverall thing. No military insignia or anything like that. And did they communicate with you at all? No. No, I was screaming at them. But I didn't, I didn't get any... I didn't hear them say, make a sound. But, um, you know, a lot of people can't understand the degree of, to which I was out of my head with fear. But... You have to understand that when you can't breathe, nothing will cause more panic in a person than not being able to breathe. And the, 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 the movie depicted the actor as having this membrane over his face, placed over his face, and he's struggling to breathe through it. And, you know, that, I think, did a better job of communicating how I felt because of the uh, not being able to get air better than if you'd had an actor standing there breathing hard, looking panicked. You really wouldn't understand that the lack of air and how much panic that causes in a person. You know, that that's the reason they use waterboarding to get information out of people is because nothing creates more fear. Yeah, well, what was the air quality in the room itself? It was, uh, well... You know, I, I was having a lot of trouble breathing. I don't know whether it was because of some injury to my chest or because of the wrong mixture of gases or whatever, but it did seem very heavy, hot, and humid. Mm -hmm. Did you get the sense that they were repairing you because they had blasted you into the trees? I'd say that was a pretty good guess. Uh, okay, so you uh, you go into animal instinct mode, you kick one of them or, or push them away, and then what happens? Well, they came around the table towards me, and so I just grabbed for something off of the table. They had a bunch of stuff out there, and I grabbed the biggest thing I could find and was lashing out towards them. Uh, I couldn't have hit them because they weren't that close yet, but uh, you know, the, my I was trying to be as threatening as possible. And part of my panic was I didn't feel that I had the strength to fend them off if they did get that close. And so, you know, they stopped before they were within reach. And uh, then all of, all three at the same time just turned and whisked out of there real fast. And were you clothed? Yeah, I was clothed. I, you know, that thing they had over my chest, all they did was push my shirt up and, and have that laying across there when I stood up, my shirt fell back down. And what was the, was the gravity the same in this place? Well, it could have been heavier. Maybe that's why I felt so weak. 
but I don't know whether that was because of some injury or because the air wasn't right, or maybe it was. It, you know, it would it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to think there might be some heavier gravity there because one of the Afro scientists was analyzing their parents based on you know the, in terms of what he thought the kinds of conditions they might have evolved in. You know, um, large eyes would be consistent with a thick atmosphere that would block a lot of the sunlight. The small nostrils would would also mean a thicker atmosphere, and the small chest would require less ventilation to, to get the gases through there. And, and so all those things added up to a, a heavier gravity situation. You know, heavier gravity would probably create a thicker atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was just uh, one of APRO's... Uh, uh, university people. When when you picked up the instruments, uh, did you recognize any of them? Did they look like anything we have? Well, they. You know, I probably don't didn't know enough about medicine at the time to to recognize you know a, a particular type of instrument. You know, nothing I recognize. Nothing like a pair of pliers or pliers or scissors or or even a knife. But. Okay. Um, it's kind of chrome metal objects formed into different things that would be about hand size, some other things. So they flee the room, and then what do you do? <laughs> You're just like, oh, my God, where where am yeah. I? Uh, what's I'm, going on I'm, here? I mean, does it does it dawn on you? Do you think now, like, I'm on a ship or I'm on another yeah. planet or something? That was what – I'm inside that thing. That was uh -huh. my, my thinking. I, my mind just seized on this thing, and it's kind of a panic where – in the back of my mind, I was thinking, I've just got to open the door and jump out. And it was kind of stupid because I was assuming that this thing would be where it was when I was picked up. But, you know, not knowing how long I had been out, and there was no telling um, how far from that I might have been. So it's probably fortunate that I wasn't able to find a door that I could open because that might have been a real disastrous situation. What else was in the room? Where there was a light source, presumably, right? Yeah, the light over the table. But, you know, I was afraid they would come back. And, you know, the lighting, when I looked up at it when I was laying there, you know, seemed painful to look at, even though it was really kind of dim. So this whole thing was very claustrophobic because it was so small, so dimly lit. And the, and the the heat and the humidity, but um, so I uh, was afraid they'd come back. And when they went out, there was this passage outside the door that um, went in both directions, and they'd gone to the right. So I went to the left because you know I was afraid they were going to come back, and I, and I panicked and I, I rushed down this little passage, but because it curved so tightly. I couldn't see far enough behind me to see if they were catching up or see far enough ahead of me to, to know if uh, I was running onto something worse. When they ran out of the room, did they run like people run? Yeah, you know, I get that question a lot. Did they, did, did they seem mechanical or did they float across the ground? They, they, they moved in a very natural way, but natural for something that was very light and uh, quick and... Uh, 
kind of like, you know, a small animal or something, just a, a, a scurrying sort of action. There was nothing robotic in their movements. And, uh, is that a is that a daughter uh, here in the background? <laughs> That's my grandbaby. Ah, very nice. Uh-huh. I'm, not, I'm not getting any help from the other. <laughs> That's <country>. right. <laughs> as long as we explain the noise, you it'll be fine. Get the baby. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was just in, desperate to get out of there any way I could. So where did you go? Where, where did you end up going on the ship? Well, there, I went right past a door that was on my left, and. Uh, I finally got a better grip on myself, and I stopped, and there was a door to my right. And this was a kind of a strange thing, because it turned out to be some kind of a planetarium-like building, or, I mean, room. Because when I, from the center of the room, it would darken, and you could see points of light, like stars. So it was either somehow viewing where it was at, or or had a map projection that was all around, the walls, ceiling, and, and floor. And uh, there was a chair in the middle of it, but what uh, what drew me in there was the, these rectangles on the wall that I you know took to be doorways. And I was thinking that I could open one and, and and escape. And so that was the reason I started pushing these buttons on this chair, hoping I could open a open a door. But uh, most of the buttons didn't seem to do anything. Mm-hmm. There was one control that moved the star pattern, which was very disorienting because they were all around me. But um, it wasn't very long after I did that that uh, something caught my attention from the door that I had entered uh, by, and uh, I could see this man standing there. And so I took uh, I took him to be a human being, and. Um, that I was rescued, so I went running up to him and uh, uh, just asking all these questions, and he wasn't responding, which didn't really bother me that much at first because, you know, here was a familiar-looking person that, you know, I thought was, uh, didn't he didn't seem frightened, and, and uh, so when he wanted me to go with him, I went, thinking, Maybe it was just this helmet he had on that would kept him from answering or from hearing me right or whatever. But uh, he took me out of the craft. And uh, I don't know if the craft was inside of this hangar or this larger enclosure the whole time or or if it uh, was taken in there in the last, you know, part of the time I was in there. But... When he, he took me to a sort of an airlock little cubicle, mm-hmm. and then when I got outside of there, it was much brighter, and the uh, light was like sunlight. Well, let me ask you, before we get into that, the, the chair with the, the buttons, did the buttons look recognizable as buttons, and was the chair built for the little people, or was it built for human-sized people? I would say it was definitely too small for me. And the same thing with the handle on the lever. Any sort of markings on anything? Well, on the screen there was these lines, black lines. It was a kind of a greenish background, glowing, just like you'd see on a computer screen. Except the lines were black. It was long lines with little black segments on them, but 
they intersected each other at all different kinds of angles. And some of the buttons would make the lines move relative to each other. But there was no um, numbers or letters by any of the graduations on these things. So I don't know how anybody could keep track of what it was doing, but hmm. um, it didn't make any sense at all to me. It didn't look like anything you could read. Okay, so but, you go out into the hangar, and uh, and at this point no one's still saying anything to you. Right. And, you know, he seems to be in a hurry, and I'm really just kind of being pulled along, stumbling. I can, don't really have the strength to walk real steady. And so I had to pay attention to, where, to my walking because he was rushing me along. So I, I tried to look around, and I could see that there were other disc-shaped uh, craft inside of this big room. But... Um, they were, were more rounded and shinier. Were there people out out and about? No, just saw just just him and me. And uh, he seemed in a hurry. He got me down this hallway uh, and took me into a room um, and left me with some other people. And they were dressed like him, except they didn't wear the helmet. And we always hear about, you know, Nordic types and this sort of thing. Is that what they were? Were they blonde people? Well, I'd never heard of that then, but I, I guess that's what you, you would fit that description. Just a kind of a blue coverall, and again, no military insignia. But um, the main th- encouraging thing was no helmet, so I thought, now they can answer my questions. So I started over with all this, you know, screaming all these questions at them, and uh they wouldn't answer me either, and so I started to have serious misgivings about was I rescued, what were their intentions, and then when they came over and started trying to get me to lay down on this table, I really got alarmed and started to fight back, um, but I was pretty weak, and uh, there was three of them, and, and they were stronger than me. Uh, they probably would have been stronger than me if I... I wasn't in a weakened condition, but one of them put a mask over my face, kind of like an oxygen mask, and um, I almost was able to pull it away before I blacked out. But uh, yeah, I, I just I was out fast. I don't know what it was, but it it, it must have been pretty powerful because I was out. And then where did you wake up? Um, I was lying face down my head on my arm. It was cold outside. And uh, I was lying beside the road. But there was a light above me. And so I looked to see where the light was coming from. But it went off. But I could still see in in the dark um, this uh, shiny object. And were you in the same place as they had uh, picked you up? No. No, this was a paved road. And so, you know, it just shot straight up into the sky. And it was amazing that it could move that fast without a sonic boom or at least some kind of sound. But I stood up. I was still pretty wobbly, but I, I could see some lights down below. And I recognized the stretch of road and that this was the town nearest where this happened, which was not where I lived. But still, like, 
you know, 15 miles away. Um, I ran down into the town and uh, tried to bang on the door of the first building I came to. The lights were on and there was smoke coming out of the chimney, but nobody came to the door. So I ran on down and there was a, across the second bridge and <clears throat> found uh, some phone booths at a service station there. And the first one I went into was out of order, which really whacked me even more. But <laughs> the next one worked. And at that time, you didn't even have to have coins to talk to the operator. And uh, I put in a call to my brother-in-law. And, and uh, first, he thought it was a, a, a practical joke. You know, he started to hang up on me real sarcastic like he says I think you got the wrong number but I screamed and managed to convince him that it was me and so he said okay I'll get your brother and we'll come and get you how much time had gone by well I, I thought it was the same night you know but I I collapsed there and when they came to get me it seemed like hardly any time at all but um, something in the conversation Made you know they got the idea that I thought it was the same night, and I said, "Traps, you've been gone for five days. Feel your face." And I had the five-day growth of beard, and well, that was the that was the. For some reason, that just kind of finished me off. I at first I tried to tell him what was what had happened and what I saw, and I, it was just so. So you remembered you remembered being in there. Yeah, but it was just so terrifying, so that that I couldn't talk about it. You know. Right. And it wasn't until the hypnosis that I, that was actually the first time I was able to even get it out because it was just so hard to talk about. Well, when you say that, do you mean that the relaxation process of hypnosis allowed you to relax enough to tell what you remembered, or did you not remember anything until you were under hypnosis? Uh, I remembered it, I remembered all that, and that was the reason I... And it was in such a constant state of terror, I and mean, I hardly slept at all. I was just, just on the verge of a total breakdown. Uh, I just want to go back to one thing, which is uh, when your friends were driving away, did they see this thing take off? They didn't see it leave until they came back. Now, in the movie, they had it where they go down the road, and they start arguing about what to do, and they realize they've got to go back and, and help. But in real life, they, they saw some deer hunters, and they went and tried to catch them because they wanted to get some people with guns to go back with them. But they couldn't catch up with them. So they, you know, argued and said, look, we've got to do something. Um, and when the guys uh, that didn't want to go back balked at, you know, let's just get some guns first. Uh, they they when Mike said you know this truck's going back and anybody doesn't want to can get out and stand here in in the dark nobody volunteered to do that in the movie they had Mike bravely going back by himself but the truth is all those guys uh, went back the same night right then mm-hmm. and none of them were going to get out and stand alone in the dark or, or and wait you know that was it was definitely the the lesser of evils to go go together, mm-hmm. but I, I do got I, I do have to give those guys credit. That was a courageous thing to do. You know, they thought and 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 had every reason to believe that I'd been killed, and you know, it, it was a, a big risk to them to go back to try to rescue me. 
mm-hmm. and that was the only reason to go right back, you know, because they they could have easily excused it to themselves or to anybody that just to go back and get some help first, but they didn't. And so, you know, as they approached the area, they saw the object rise up and streak off to the northeast. And so that made it a little easier to go back, but they they weren't sure, you know. Mm -hmm. They only had one flashlight, and they said when they got there, they could see, you know, the tracks leading up to the middle of the clearing. That was it. But they uh, uh, just huddled all around that one flashlight shoulder to shoulder and made their way around the area uh, searching and calling and were unable to to find anything, so they decided to go get help. And um, when they got back to town and and called the the deputy and he called the sheriff and he came down, when the lawmen interviewed him, they they were absolutely certain something really terrible had happened. You know, these guys were white and shaking. You know, one of the guys was still crying. And they knew that it, that it was something really bad, but they immediately suspected that that there maybe like been a fight, and that these guys had killed me, and and hid my body, and had to come up with some kind of cover story for why there was no more Travis. Mm-hmm. And so, in the movie, they didn't go back that night. But uh, the truth is, they went. Uh, the the lawman insisted that at least half the crew go back with him. So what was uh, what was the basic time frame between you getting back and this turning into a giant circus media UFO, UFO people, you know the the whole thing? It it started almost immediately, uh, I guess, because the the sheriff tried to keep a lid on things, but because they had so many volunteers. You know, they made us a, a brief search that night, but the, early the next morning, the sheriff had the, the 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 posse, the search and rescue team, volunteers from the Forest Service, and civilian volunteers, and there were so many people involved that the story leaked out, and it was on the radio station. Then, then it was international news, and they had crews from England, Japan, and it was a circus pretty quick, and with the ufologists coming in and. And all kinds of crazy stuff uh, going on. And uh, during the search, um, uh, one of the uh, Forest Service guys walked up to one of the crew and grabbed him by the shirt front and says, all right, where'd you hide the body? And uh, so that was when the crew said, look, damn it, we were telling you the truth. We did not kill him. Uh, we saw what we saw, and we'll... we'll take anything you want, you know, sodium pentothal, lie detector test, and we'll, we'll prove it. So um, Deputy Flake heard about that and, and came over and uh, arranged with the crew to, to t- test them. That They were calling in, uh, the sheriff had called in the, the uh, Arizona Department of Public Safety, the, the state police uh, polygraph examiner, to test the man. And so um, they went down to the jail, the courthouse there, and and uh, took the test, and when they passed, they had to give up on the murder theory because uh, you know, that was one of the questions, did you, did you kill him? But there was a whole line of explanations uh, to, to follow that one, not just from the lawmen, but from people in the community. They uh, had to explain it away somehow, so... Well, let me ask you this: When what were you? What was your disposition toward people before this happened? Were you a people person? Did you like people? Well, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I guess I've always liked people, but you know. I'm just wondering. I mean, afterwards, I mean, here you have the biggest deal in in all of human history, right? Alien contact, and so there had to be a piece of you that thought, like, with this media attention, something sane and rational would would happen here that you would be heard uh, and taken seriously. And but of course, we all know that that doesn't happen in ufology now. Uh, yeah. After all of these years of of watching this stuff unfold the way it does. Uh, did that jade you in any way? I mean, did, did you become? Yeah, a, you know, and it was even worse back then because the, the, you know, there there wasn't a lot of the support groups and and things, and you know, I was completely unaware of ufology. The only reason ufologists got involved is because they came and got uh, a hold of my brother and gave him contact information during the search, and so you know, that's how they got involved. And you know, there was one real flaky group that that was in the movie, but the. The really good researchers that followed up on that um, uh, weren't in the movie. You know, they 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 sponsored some really good medical tests, and uh, which you know helped to to clear the air of a lot of uh, rumors that were flying around. They were trying to explain it away as a as a drug hallucination that, that I'd supposedly you know been tripping on drugs and just believe that I'd seen these creatures and. Or the, or that I had a transitory psychosis. So you know, they, they the, the doctors put uh, blood and urine samples through the Maricopa County Medical Examiner's drug screen, which proved I didn't have any drug of any sort in my body. And uh, and I also took a whole battery of psychiatric uh, tests that uh, proved that uh, I was uh, uh, a very <laughs> a very sound mind. Mm-hmm. But you know what? What the media never asked when they heard these kind of theories was, you know, how do seven people have the same hallucination? Right. And you know, so I took and passed a couple of polygraph tests then, and I took a, a couple more about the time the movie came out. And here recently, I, I passed two more. So I've I've passed six different polygraph tests on this issue, and you know, some of them in, uh, on the crew of, of past um, two, and, you know, uh, some of my family members were tested. I think there's been like 15 uh, or 16 different tests uh, passed in in, uh, connection with this incident. Well, let me ask you, I mean, your book, uh, at least the original edition that I had read, Fire in the Sky, spent a lot of time uh, answering um, debunkers, and especially, I think, Phil Klass, uh, and you went to great pains in that book to answer them, um, and it was obvious your anger and your uh, frustration. And I'm, I'm wondering, with all of these years now having passed, do you understand them any better? Do you? Um, I, I felt it was kind of my duty to go down and point by point refute each and every thing, in in a way that a, a, an independent person inquiring could be pointed in the direction of, of experts and, and documents and, uh, you know, independently verifiable sources that, you know, prove beyond a shadow of doubt that not one allegation that any of the skeptics had put forth, you know, would hold a drop of water. And in many cases that they'd actually fabricated, uh, uh, you know, lied about the evidence to try to, to create uh, or discredit it. And so, you know, I, I was pr- pretty uh, um, 
you know, hot on that at, at the time. But over time, I've come to realize, especially now that it's out there, you know, there's all this documentation, all this evidence is there. You know, this is recognized as the most documented case in, in history. And that anybody that has theories against it at this point are people that really don't care about the facts. Almost in every single case, uh, it's somebody who hasn't looked at the evidence. They, and they made up their mind without it. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the first few pages of my book, I, I quote Emerson, uh, condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. And, and that's kind of been the theme throughout this, that generally speaking, the people who take the skeptical stance, you know, even in the community, are people who really don't have any facts, or, or they're just going on some kind of vague rumor that they heard. And it takes a lot more than that to make a fair judge of anything in life. And it's not just anomalous events, but, you know, you know, political questions, you know, questions about what's healthy, what what car is safe, what car is, you know, you got, you've got to have good information. And, See, I think and, I'd be far more upset than you are, because, uh, you know, I'm uh, an experiencer, but my experiences are um, questionable because <laughs> you can always say, well, it was nighttime. It was in bed. You know, that whole scenario. Unfortunately, we haven't lost Jeremy for five days. <laughs> That's right. You haven't <laughs> lost me for, for five days. I don't have several witnesses. I wasn't, it, there wasn't a clear cut. This happened, this happened, this happened set of events. Um, so you can make whatever, you know, even I can be skeptical about my own experiences, right? Well, yeah, well, that's natural. I think, you know, even even I had a period of, of reality testing there where where they were just hammering away with me. The sheriff was had this theory that I'd been hit on the head and been given drugs and, and you know, that people were trying pushing this delusion thing. And I, I hadn't made any sort of affirming contact with the uh, with the rest of the crew. So, you know, I, I was questioning my own mind a little bit, but, you know... If you couldn't have been questioning that much. Of, I mean, wouldn't, I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to get out of you is, how just upset were you with the world that you had oh, this I amazing was, experience and it caused you post-traumatic stress disorder and all this stuff, and nobody was on your side? I mean, you had like a I bunch of I was pretty outraged, you know, and I felt that. very, very, you know, uh, um, outside the community, you know, I, I felt... Um, very alienated <laughs> to the coin of phrase, but you know, um, I've, I've gradually gotten over that because you know you can't carry that kind of anger around in you all the time. You know, really, <laughs> watch really us try. <laughs> watch us. <laughs> you know, this has been. It's, let's see. Um, this uh, November fifth, it's going to be thirty-five years. Yeah. So you know. That would have just burned me up to, to keep doing that. I realize that the people who uh, are like that are, are – it's, it's, the problem is theirs, you know. They have a, a, a some sort of emotional weakness. That, you know, very often it's fear. They're afraid it's true. So um, that's really what's what's driving their, their skepticism. It's, you know – they, they view this as the boogeyman, and oh, there's no such thing, you know. Well, the truth is, it isn't. It isn't monsters, and it's not supernatural. One of these days, this is going to be like those really strange people from way over there that we don't know very much about. But you know, for right now, 
it was, it was, and you know, in the in the immediate aftermath, I was very, very traumatized, not just by the event, but by the reactions of people. But it wasn't all negative. It was divided, and uh, even that 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 made for more turmoil, you know. Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, um, one of my brothers was accusing the the crew of murdering me, and uh, that was his theory right off. Are you all still and, friends, by the way? Uh, no, you know we weren't friends then. It was it was um, a group of people together for a, a job, and when the job you know blew apart because of this incident. We really didn't have any more reason to continue to associate. You know, I, I would imagine that I could contact any of them and, and uh, you know, have a friendly conversation right now. But there's never been, a like, a reunion or anything, so... Mm-hmm. Well, you don't, you, don't want those other, you don't want the other crowd to show up if you have a reunion. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, they've stood by what we saw all these years. And uh, with really, you know, nothing to gain from it. Right. It was uh, it, it affected our lives in a negative way. Mm. You know, and to this day, I'd have to say I'd rather it never happened. Yeah. Well, join the club there. Uh, you know, you, you you try to cope with with difficult things in your life, so you got to yeah. try to find the good in it somehow. But you know, that's just a, a way to come to terms with things. Or, the truth is, it'd have been better if I could have just had uh, my life back. Yeah, keep cutting logs. Well, I, I gotta ask Travis: Was there uh, any sense of environmental effects on the land that you all might have come across, even even down the line, sometime later? Did you ever come across that spot and see any kind of uh, yeah, uh, we, uh, we torched uh, ground or anything? About the time we were doing all this promotional work for Paramount. Uh, they wanted to do uh, an interview on the site, but it was the middle of winter and there was three feet of snow out there. But they they wanted to do it, and so it was for some TV show, Entertainment Tonight, or Hard Copy, or some, something like that. But um, so they rented this big snowcat, like they have at the ski run, and we went plowing through the drifts and went out there and we did the interview in the snow and. Um, I thought the difficulty in finding the place was the fact that everything was covered with snow and it made everything look so different. But apparently um, uh, the crew boss thought different because I found out later that he went back after the snow melted and uh, checked out the area and he he, uh, figured out that the trees uh, closest to where the object came down were very much bigger than they ought to be. Hmm. So we actually took some core samples, and there's pictures of, of this on one of these core samples in the book, and it shows that you know, counting back uh, one ring for each year, that um, at the time the incident came uh, uh, happened and the, and the craft came down near these trees, that the tree growth had been very uniform for decades, 70, 80 years, and then suddenly. The growth rings were very much thicker, uh-huh. and uh, using the uh, a formula for the volume of a cone, because you know a tree is a tall, skinny cone, not a not a cylinder. Right. And uh, so they calculated that the trees were producing wood fiber at about 36 times the rate that they had in all its uh, those previous decades. Huh. So. 
Well, that's that's interesting because that's so counter to everything you hear. You know, I mean, every time we hear of a craft interacting with the environment, we usually hear the opposite sometimes or most yeah, of the time. That's, that's kind of unusual. Yeah. But, you know, um, what amazed me is that how little interest in the researchers that have discovery of this concrete. Uh, it took a while before, you know, the samples were finally taken to a lab and tests were made and stuff. And so that's still ongoing. But something was suggested later, just about a week ago, that really surprised me because no one had thought of this before. Nobody had thought of checking the trees where the craft returned me. Ah. And so uh, that's something that I've yet to pursue, but I'm going to go check that out hmm. and uh, see if the effect was there also. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of slide back to... Well, to the beginning of this thing, I mean, when you were on the, the smaller craft, the initial craft that, that picked you up, yeah. um, you say it was, it was rather small, tight, confined, that sort of thing. Yeah. When you walked into the, the room that we'll call the map room, uh, was that significantly larger than just about any other room that you'd been in up to that point? No, it was small. And, you know, I, I gradually pieced it together, the, the kind of the general layout of the part of the ship that I saw, uh-huh. and, you know, figured out that the doors that I was trying so desperately to open wouldn't have gone to the outside anyway. But uh, okay. um, I didn't know it at the time. Would you say that, I mean, you got a real good look at this thing uh, from the outside, and uh, and I'm curious about the structure of these things. I'm curious about... You know, was this a, uh, when you say a silver disc, are we talking about something that's more concave or convex on the top, bottom, sides? Was there any kind of defining shape to it at all? Sharp-edged, soft-edged, any sort of thing? The conclusion I draw from uh, this is that I I don't think that the the shape of these things is all that critical to their operation at all. They just seem to be kind of round in a certain dimension, but uh-huh. other than that, uh, there's quite a bit of variety, you know, like like snowflakes or something. But yeah, you know, the, the, it was it was shaped like two pie pans uh, placed lip to lip. Okay. But uh, rather sharp edges. Okay. But extremely smooth. I was just amazed. It was kind of glass-like uh, when I went up there. And the the um, surface of it was metallic and reflective of the surrounding trees and stuff, but okay. at the same time giving off a glow. So it's kind of hard to describe how something can be shiny and reflecting at the same time it's emitting right. light itself. I, I don't know, kind of like the glare on your TV set if you're sitting. Okay, yeah, yeah. Would you say that... Then, having been inside this thing, would you say that the there was a a certain discrepancy with how big the outside looked versus when you were inside it? Yeah. Did it uh, did it seem did it seem yeah, consistent? It, it, it did seem bigger from the outside, but you know, I thought that maybe it was just because I couldn't estimate where you know in the woods you don't have anything familiar to, to compare it to. Right. The truck is behind me, and there's nothing that I can look at at the same time. But I always kind of prided myself on the ability 
to estimate distances in the woods, uh, you know, that uh, that ability is kind of connected to our work. Right. You know, we're spacing trees, and, and you don't measure the distance. You've got to estimate it. So, you know, I, I thought, you know, the crew pulled their descriptions pretty uh, closely to, to come up with what the artist uh, drew, you know, for the right. pictures for the book. So you would say that it that it where you were seemed smaller than it should have been to to what you actually saw, because yeah. that's that's kind of a thing that that's come up a couple of times for me in in talking to certain people. I had a man some years ago who approached me in of all places a like a I don't know like a Home Depot kind of store, and uh, had heard me talking to somebody, and uh, he was some kind of military photographer who was involved in something like this, and. He was lowered down into this thing that was sitting in inside of a, a place the size of uh, a gymnasium, maybe average high school gymnasium. And he said, when they lowered you down into it, you immediately got violently ill because it was disorienting to the fact that the inside was bigger than the size that was contained within the hangar <laughs> that it was sitting in. So that's why I asked that question. Yeah, uh, you would think that maybe if they can travel the distance they do and the way they do, that maybe there's some kind of space-time. Sure. Some way of manipulating space and time and contraction. Uh, yeah, it sure as hell wouldn't surprise me. Jeff, do you believe that story? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, because I've, I've gotten that uh, more than a couple of times in the weirdest of places that I, I can't I can't uh, ignore that as as a, a distinct possibility of some. Well, I, I didn't think you believed in any of the uh, the military stuff. I usually do, well, but you let, know. Let me let me tell you a little story about the military. Yeah. Um, about the time that we were doing all this promotion for Paramount and doing all these interviews, this guy calls up and says that he was out there at the time. He was deer hunting. He was with his wife, and uh, that he was on this ridge near there. And, you know, the, what he was describing, you know, this is remote backcountry. There's not, you know, none of this stuff was publicized. So I was convinced because he could describe the terrain so well. Hmm. But um, he said, you know, I divorced this woman and she'll verify it, uh, that, that we were there. He said, but he was in military intelligence at the time. And uh, he went to his superiors and said, these guys are accused of murder. Shouldn't I, you know, testify to what I've seen? And he said his superiors told him to stay out of it because they they hadn't been indicted. And so, you know, when they passed the polygraph test, you know, he just opted to uh, do what his superiors told him and didn't didn't come forward. But he said he'd always felt bad about it and and wanted to corroborate what he'd seen. And and so I thought it was pretty interesting. I got his contact information and I was telling uh, Tracy Torme about it, the, the scriptwriter for the movie. Mm-hmm. And I went off. We went off and did these uh, interviews, and I found out later what happened, that uh, Tracy got in touch with him, and that they'd flown him out to Hollywood. And, uh, the, and the people at Paramount had decided to have him polygraphed. And so he was given a test by the same uh, state police polygraph examiner that uh, had tested the crew, and uh, some very strange results. There hmm. was actually two, two tests, two parts of the test, and uh, he passed the part about being there, about seeing the glow of the craft and the flash of the beam. And he, he passed the part about being in military intelligence. Uh, but when he was questioned about uh, having some sort of uh, 
contact with the debunkers, with, with Phil Klass and the anti-people, he flunked just as badly as you could. Whereas, you know, uh, he passed perfectly all the, all the stuff about being there and being in military intelligence. And so that, you know, really has, has increasingly nagged at me over the years because it just seems like such a big coincidence that somebody from military intelligence would, uh, you know, stand there with a high-powered rifle, uh, would happen to be nearby in this remote area, huh. you know. Well, that was going to be... It's not impossible. It could have been a coincidence. Yeah. I mean, that was going to be my next question is, how often over all these years have you been approached by anyone claiming or... Well, let's not put the claiming part in there. How many verified people uh, could you count on your hands that have come up to you and said something provocative to you in the way of, of uh, them being involved in intelligence or military and they kind of, uh, I don't know, either warn you off or, well, uh, there was only or the opposite, was, you know? There was only one that was really serious, and this guy came into town and he showed a badge and said he was a federal criminal investigator. And, you know, he harassed the boss and was trying to concoct some sort of thing about uh, uh, the Forest Service contracts, but so he wrote up this confession and he tried to uh, um, coerce uh, Mike into signing it. He said, I ain't signing that. That ain't true. And, and, and so he just wrote up a you know description of what really happened, which was nothing. And so the guy left all pissed off, but, you know, the, the message came through that, you know, we can... He had to spend over a week with this guy, with the constant threat. Well, I'm going to put you in jail, and it it was all baloney. He was yeah. trying to claim that his brother, which had been a partner on another contract, didn't exist. He says, "Oh yeah, it just so happens we're having a family reunion right now. I'll take you over there and introduce him to him." It was, <laughs> it was those kinds of accusations, but and and especially since he found out later that that he'd gone to the sheriff and uh, um, examined the file about the UFO incident. So oh. it, was, it was pretty clear you know, in his thinking that that was a kind of an effort to intimidate. And it didn't work. It was stupid. You know, how, could, how could they suppress it? It was already worldwide news. Yeah. Yeah, well, at that point, you know, you're, you're well-recognized, so you're kind of in the public eye, which kind of removes you from harm in that way. Um, Back to the the event itself. These um, the, these blonde people, these Nordics, whatever we want to call them. Any facial expressions towards you when you were uh, a little bit? Um, uh, the first guy had a sort of a vague, tolerant-like expression, uh -huh. kind of a faint smile. Okay. Uh, in response to all my screaming, you know, and. Uh, that was really kind of uh, a little That'll piss you off. <laughs> my, you know, my desperation, and he's just acting like, big deal here, you know? Right. Uh, but, and, but then when, uh, the, when I was with the others, they were trying to get me down. I was still screaming. I could, you know, they, they tried not to react, I could tell. But, you know, they were blinking. And, uh, and whenever I'd scream really loud, I could see a, like a wince. Okay. The volume. So they weren't just frozen face, but it seemed like they were determined not to respond. I didn't and, hear them talking to each other. Right. 
A- anything uh, as far as as far as ambient sounds, either on the larger the the larger environment that you were in, uh, and the smaller craft, uh, any any ambient noise to speak of, a hum, clicking, no. any sort of no, thing. If, like I, if I'd have been more calm, I might have noticed something, some kind of faint sound. But right, I didn't I didn't feel motion, and I no. didn't feel uh, didn't hear distant machinery or anything like that. But I was screaming, and you know, at least inside my head. So. Well, it, I mean, it would stand to reason. I mean, this is this is the tough question to ask, but I got to ask it. I, I mean, is there a? I I can well imagine the state uh, that you're talking about. And I I I remember years ago somebody saying to me at a at a, at a convention, and your name came up, and uh, you know they asked me what I saw. I I said, well, I said frankly, I said everything that I've read about the man, I I tend to believe that he's telling the truth. And um, so some man walked up and he said, well, you know, you're talking about a guy who claims to have uh, uh, his, his head was killing him and his body was aching and he couldn't have move, but yet he had enough gumption to jump off a table and threaten, you know, these little beings and then run down a corridor and all this sort of thing. I said, I- obviously, you've never been terrified beyond all human comprehension yeah. <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, the adrenaline kicks in and you're on you're just on fight or flight mode at that point. But to ask the question, uh, if you had the presence of mind to notice past what would be, I guess, relevant injuries from being thrown to the ground forcefully like a rag doll, was there any sort of weird disorientation or um, just, just, I don't know, kind of a feeling of um, uh, surrealness about the entire episode or not, or did everything seem pretty grounded in like I'm here? I know where you know. I I I don't know where I am, but I f- I feel the ground under my feet. My head is orientated to left, right, up and down, that sort of thing. Or was everything sort of weird? <laughs> well, you know, because of all these you know little government things in the background, I questioned myself about could this could this have been uh, some kind of mind control experiment? Mm-hmm. You know, you gotta you gotta think of everything. Yeah. Uh, but um, and then you you go on the go online and Google mind control and man, they've been up to some real. They're pretty deep into that, you know. Yeah. Not just our government, but other governments. But you know, I'd have to say if it was mind control, it was perfect because it's as real to us as as anything. Yeah. You was know? it was it more real than real for you? I mean, was it? Did it seem in that environment? Did it? Did things seem a lot more sharp, a lot more crisp, a lot more? I mean, of course, you could probably chalk yeah. some of that up to adrenaline, but uh, yeah. Well, you know how it is when you're really in an adrenaline situation, your perception of time changes. Right. So you know, I've estimated the time that I was conscious with pretty wide range of, of guesstimate there, but it was far, far less than the five days and six hours I was missing. Right, right. Were, were you somewhat able to, to breathe better after leaving the smaller craft? Or yeah, did the, the air was cooler and easier to breathe quite really? a bit. But there was still pain in my head and chest, though. But huh. I, that, that gradually... There was actually some of that even after I was returned. Okay. And it kind of gradually went away. 
Was was there any uh, like uh, as far as you know medical exam for you when you got back? Uh, was there anything that they couldn't? I don't know that they couldn't really ignore a- any sort of odd markings, any sort of. Uh, well, uh, I mean, you're a logger, so you're going to get hurt. You're going to skin knees. You're going to, you know, you're going to tear your hand up now and then. But I mean, was there anything out of the ordinary for you? Well, there was a a, a red spot on the inside of my right arm, and uh, of course, the the drug theory people tried to say, well, that's where he injected his hallucinogens. But uh-huh. my understanding about those kind of drugs is that they're not injected. But the 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 examining physician said that. Um, it was, it was a called it a two millimeter red spot. Said it was partially healed, and that it wasn't over any major blood vessel. So, um, I I figured it very likely just some injury that I got at work. Right. And a lot of uh, brush that can poke you, but you know it didn't seem to. Uh, a while back, somebody called me up and says, "Well, what if what if they?" inserted some kind of a device in there, you know. So he told me, you know, that I should get a magnet. I had this really strong magnet on my refrigerator. He says, put it over where that spot was. And I, I did, but I, I, didn't, I didn't feel nothing. I didn't see anything lift. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Well, that's a good thing. Um, can I, I, mean, can yeah. I just throw in one question here really quickly? Do you, do you find it odd that the, there might have been a military person there who witnessed this? But yeah. nobody uh, suggested suggested putting like you in a radiation suit, or <laughs> you know something that you might see uh, in in a manual about how to deal with somebody who might have contacted uh, aliens. Yeah, that's kind of strange, you know. That um, you know these medical tests, a lot of them were done kind of uh, double blind, where they didn't tell the examiner or the technician that it was me. So you got a kind of an unbiased test that way, hmm. and and so like the EEG, the brainwave scan, there was a kind of an anomaly that was quoted in there. I still have a copy of the report, but uh, I don't know what it means. But they referred to it as, I think they used the word anomaly or curious, some, something that was out of the ordinary. Huh. There's some kind of bisynchronous wave traveling front to back. I don't know what any of that means. But other than that, everything checked out normal, upper body x-rays and um, everything. And I've been very healthy ever since. So you don't really have any lasting effects from this at all? I mean, I mean physically. Now, now that leads me to the other question is, uh, take the trash out at night, Travis? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean, obviously, like right after you got back, and and I'm I'm sure there's a point where things did settle, sort of back to normal for you, or at least to where, uh, you know, your story kind of faded from public light a little bit more than than what it was. Were were you apprehensive about going out at night? Did you? Yeah, I, I was, and you know, it was, but it was one of those things like. You know, when you fall off the bike, you got to get back on. Right, you know, sure. Or you're never going to be right. So I made myself go back to the woods to work eventually. Wow. Although I do have to admit that I that I took a gun with me. And I was, <laughs> made sure I was never out there at night. Right, right. Do you look for them? I did for a long time, and uh, you know, some things caught my attention, and 
we took a picture at work and uh, took it in and blew it up, and it turned out to be a weather balloon. Another time, got a call from people who said, go out and look up, and it was amazing. You know, it's a big glowing disc up there in the sky. Mm. But it turned out that it was a weather balloon, but it was so UFO-like. It was a kind of a flattened disc, and it had these four projections evenly spaced that were hanging down from it, kind of like legs. Right. But uh, it was quite a big hubbub about that. I heard that uh, people that had a police scanner heard uh, police over in the next county saying, do you see what I see? But it did turn out when I got the um, uh, telephoto zoom, power zoom on my video camera to, to to look like a balloon because I could see this cable that went down from the center. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. And there was the instrument at the end of that. But uh, that was. Meanwhile, the family's looking at you pretty hard. I mean, Wallace, <laughs> keep an eye on him. You know, the, the two weeks ago there was a deal uh, in the police report where they said that a man called in and reported a, a UFO and and a glowing object above the horizon. And they said that they checked and decided that it was planet Mars. Right. And then and then they did some more checking and decided that no, it was Venus, but that that was out of their jurisdiction. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> and that's the first time they've I've ever seen anything humorous we put into the local police reports. In the aftermath of this, I, I'm sure that you were barraged for probably months on end uh, about what happened to you and. And I'm sure that uh, everybody from Paramount to, to sightings to coast to coast to everybody else, um, you know, has, 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 including us now, has been after you for interviews and whatnot. But um, as your life, again, settled back into some sort of normalcy, did you happen to notice any kind of, um, any kind of phenomena that you would say was not ufologically related? In other words, did you have any kind of... Uh, Ghost experiences, anything you would chalk up to like a poltergeist activity, anything out of the ordinary to you that you never quite could put your finger on, like, what was that about? Well, what what I have said about that kind of question is that if anything more was to happen, I I don't think I'd go public with it, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. I've praised for, you know, having the courage to come forward and talk about this, but you know, I didn't have much choice. It was already worldwide news by the time I was returned. So, you know, it wasn't like I was, you know, doing my duty. Although I do feel a certain responsibility, you know, because of what's happened here. Yeah. Try to, try to, you know, do make something good come of it. You know, they have sure. help people. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, a need out there in the, that people need to be able to to relate to something of this nature and be able to evaluate it in a, in a sensible way, because there is a lot of nonsense out there too. And um, they need oh, to understand. Of the choir here. <laughs> the, the existence of fool's gold does not prove that there's no such thing as gold. Right. And so, they, there really needs to be some way for uh, you know people to more easily separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. It does, however, prove there are fools. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I mean, 
ultimately, one of the things that's come up again and again on this show is, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a weird question, but we're finding a lot of, uh, a lot of correlation with people on this who have UFO sightings and, and all sorts of phenomena that, that occur to them, uh, is we always ask the question, before this event happened to you, um, in fact, within, I don't know, a week, like say a week before this event happened to you, was anything going on in your life that was transitional, um, getting married, uh, leaving your wife, getting whatever? I mean, was there any kind of major life change for you just prior to something like this happening? Moving, you know, helping someone move, just being out of your general routine, or was life pretty normal before? I've never heard that question before, so I'd have to really think back and try to think what the time was like before that, because I can't think of anything right now. Okay. One of the things that we're finding is that, uh, uh, and this is all through the work of a man named George Hansen, that um, that th- that these sort of events seem to be, uh, I mean, certainly one could say you were definitely out of routine once you got back, uh, but that certainly a, lo- a lot of these uh These events are kind of preceded by a major change in your life. Uh, Someone dying, moving, getting married, getting divorced, you know, major life upheavals. And so I just asked that question for that reason alone. Um, So, overall, for you, on one hand, you say you wish this hadn't have happened, but on the other hand, on the other hand, what? I mean, uh, on the other hand, I think that, you know, the most valuable thing I could point to is that it's given me a whole lot of insight about human nature and about sort of the structure of society in a way, you know, as far as experts, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of think that there's wise and knowing people up there that are looking out for us. and It's not like that, you know. And I, I gain a lot of insight about the media, too. When I see a news story and they're, you know, I'm always looking behind what they're saying because I, you know, I know from personal experience how what you see on the screen is not what happened at all. And it's not always that they're outright lying about it. It's just that there's a certain amount of interpretation going on there. Some people call it spin. There's all different ways that you can interpret what's happening. But you, you always have to look beyond to see what the real story is. And and like when you see a movie, any kind of a movie about real life events, you know, um, I'm quite familiar with how much you know a movie can differ from what really happens. Yeah, did that piss you off at all with the movie? Well, it did at first, and I wrote letters to them uh, protesting. But uh, once I realized that they weren't going to listen to me, and uh, <laughs> I didn't have the power to to change it, I. You know, I was pretty much resigned to yeah. make yeah. the best of it. And, and you know, and overall, although I wish they had told the real story, um, it did have a positive effect on people. It did open up their minds and, and, and get people to look more at, at the facts. And so, you know, by putting all that documentation into the book, you know, it's made people more willing to look at it. And, uh, you know, it, I think it's helped um, even even locally. At the time, it wasn't like everybody in the whole town is against it. You know, it's like right. half the town is against it, which is worse because they were all arguing. You know, yeah. and like like the town marshal 
didn't believe it at all, but his wife did. But his huh. brother, who was the deputy flake, did believe it, but his wife didn't. So just among those four people, there was a, a split right through the marriage and, and brothers, you know? Right, right. The curious thing is with this is that here you are, I mean, you're, you're I'm sure you've done your research over the years and looked into things that interest you within the, the ufological stuff. But here you yeah, are, you're, exactly. you're you know, what's that? Surprised that uh, my way of coping with this was a sort of a um, not recommended uh, tactic of just denial. I, I kind of backed <laughs> up and, and yeah. shut it out of my life. I tried to live a normal life, but it gave me, you know, the chance to take these things back out of the box piece at a time and, and deal yeah. with them at my own pace, which is a lot, a lot easier than trying to just, you know, confront this whole thing all at once. Right. But you've but, you but you've been around a long time now with this, and yeah, I'm, you know, I'm curious. Come to me all the time, but oh yeah, you know, uh, I, I you know I told you about quoting Emerson about condemnation without investigation. So mm-hmm. you know, even though I get the impression that there's some really good solid cases out there and some that are quite dubious, I I would never presume to to say which ones because I haven't researched them, and I, that's what I would think would be a prerequisite. Well, I'm curious. Somebody in my my position, I right. You know, right. I'm curious, like how you've seen the quality of people, as opposed to when you were first kind of forcibly introduced to this whole community, if you want to call it that, versus what you get now. Do you find that there's like a a significant drop in like the overall intelligence level or the overall gullibility level is is getting higher? As we as we go through you know the years, you I think, find it. I I think there's kind of a several things going on here at once, and and you know over the top of a really uh, genuine phenomenon is a sort of a psychosocial uh, phenomenon that's you know completely separate from from the reality here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm I'm afraid that in some cases the uh, the quality of the researchers are. Uh, are less scientific than it was back then, you know? Right. And that's kind of surprising. You'd think they would refine that, but there was Dr. Hynek. He was an astronomer and, and the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. And you know, Stan Freeman was very scientific, and he still is, you know, he's top-notch. But some of, some of the researchers are a little bit more, uh, I'd say, less uh, scientific than they ought to be. I've even thought about writing up a little pamphlet, you know, which I would distribute for free, just a sort of a guideline about how to examine these cases from the from the standpoint of a of a researcher or just from a, the average person who's interested in, in the phenomenon, you know, to you know, to without without mentioning names or or you know particular cases, uh, you know, to try to maybe elevate the the field uh, in some way yeah, with some, with some standards. Right. Well, I could save you a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. it, it won't work. <laughs> well, uh, standards is a four-letter word. And that's right. Has Nobody wants found that. Out. What's wrong yeah. with you, Travis? <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, that's, that's the curious thing about it. I mean, for me, I mean, I've been around this 20 years now, just in, I mean, and largely into it for my own selfish reasons is that I want to know what happened to me and I'm trying to find other people with, and I've found correlative 
you know, things in it. But uh, did you find that the internet really kind of became an absurd pain in your ass because, you know, you've got people online who are kind of recounting second, third hand people who have read your book, who might've seen the movie. (laughs) I mean, do you feel like the internet kind of, kind of, uh, stuck a knife in this whole in this whole gig you know for you well you know it's there's a lot of positive and a lot of negative in it at the same time you know mm. i've I've learned how to sort it you know at least for my own purposes uh, but yeah there's <laughs> there's all kinds yeah that's for damn sure the whole spectrum is there well, let me sure. ask, yeah let me ask you travis uh you're so you're re-releasing the book with some new material uh what is the new material and why now? I guess these are sort of basic questions, but well, you know, it's kind of an update um, where everybody is, and it's a kind of like, where's my thinking taking me after this much time? And it's it's partly demand. I was getting you know emails practically every day, people wanting to know where they could find a copy because you know they were being sold used ones online for you know hundreds of dollars sometimes, and and uh, People were saying, "Why don't you reprint it?" And I was just, I was too busy working. I, I, I worked at the paper mill out here for uh, eleven years, working all the overtime I could, twelve hours a day. And uh, so I, I retired from there a little over a year ago. And I figured, well, it's time to, to do this. You know, I've been everybody's been begging me to do this all this time, so I did. But Part of it also is that there's been a really curious resurgence in interest. I've been getting email from all over the world. It's kind of like you know the the good side of the internet. It's it's like it's filtered out there, and there's just suddenly this huge. Last night, well, this morning at 4:30 in the morning, I got a call from a journalist in Kuwait, and you know he'd miscalculated the time difference. But he said he'd call back later, although he hasn't done that yet. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm I'm getting emails from really diverse places and all over the place, and there's just a huge, you know, the the talks I've been doing lately, you know, the response, the attendance is just overwhelming. I, I don't understand where all this is coming from all of a sudden. And that that's exclusively through your website and and um, coming to your live events, people can get your book. Is that right? Yeah. And your website is travis-walton.com, right? Yeah. So here we are so many years later. Um, you, you see the ufological reaction. You see how NASA's carrying on um, <laughs> doing whatever they're doing. Does does that yeah. seem superfluous to you? Uh, where, where are you with, in terms of just, uh, I guess if you consider it aliens, um, where are you with just aliens at this point having some huge question in your mind answered uh and then you go on with life and you know and the people around you don't know what you know yeah it it is kind of a a feeling of being on the outside because i definitely know uh, you know things that you know even though i've accepted the the terminology spacecraft and alien you know i i tried to stick as close as i could to just describing what happened without trying to act like I uh, learned something from it because everything like seems to be like a fragment of something that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense by itself. I, uh, you know, trying to interpret what happened to me just leads me to 
speculate three or four different scenarios to explain everything because is nothing's I, I I don't know anything that solid. But uh of course I always want to ask well have you had any sort of abductions since but you you said you wouldn't answer that even if you did, right? Yeah. Well, how about you just answer yeah. it anyway? <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably wouldn't wouldn't benefit me. Although, you know, I I am torn about that because, you know, like I said, I do feel a certain responsibility because nobody else can carry that, you know. You just have to you have to play the cards life deals you, you know. Yeah. So you're saying you have. We take that as a yes. <laughs> we'll take that as a yes. <laughs> no, I, I didn't say that. But I in the abstract. Travis, when you're uh, when you're out about town, people recognize you just ordinary townspeople. I mean, how do you how do you get treated because of all this attention? Uh, even to this day, does that still follow you, or or are you just strictly Travis yeah, walking down the street? To some extent, it does kind of follow me, and it's kind of regrettable. I would like to be seen for myself, mm. and you know, sometimes in far off places, I delude myself to thinking that. But people will come up to me and say, "Hey, you look like that guy on TV," and I go, "Yeah, I, I get that all the time." <laughs> and people tell me I look like that guy. <laughs> I guess I, I should ask one more question, and it's something that uh, Jeff had originally brought up, and I think he just forgot about. So I'm now going to steal your question, Jeff. That's okay. Go ahead. Which is uh, in the movie, of course, we see that one of um, one of your coworkers is kind of a, a jerk. Is he in real life? Who is that? Who is the guy who didn't pass the test? Uh, what was that about? What was his deal? That was Alan Dallas. He. He uh, was ruled inconclusive because he got in an argument with the examiner uh, during the test and, and walked out. But see, the polygraph test, you have to run three or four versions of the exact same set of questions. So they have something to compare to. Uh, they can't just, you know, as a matter of fact, they have, uh, the, the American Polygraph Association says that no test just with a single set of questions will be uh, considered valid you know uh-huh. that's considered unacceptable and there's you know tv shows that do that but that's that's why they're a big joke but anyway um he uh i we got a hold of the police report and uh the deputy that wrote the the report said that uh, the examiner stated that uh, dallas had told the truth but he was ruled inconclusive because he got in this argument with the examiner and uh, walked out before he finished that final run through the questions. Huh. But, but he was one of the ones that was retested uh, back in 93, and uh, he passed at the highest level. And this was with more modern equipment. There was a, a scoring system where the examiner would score it at the same time the computer scored it. And uh, he was up near the very top on both both scales. And, and why did he uh, run out on the examiner, or why did he get into a fight with him? No, I think he was just uh, afraid that the examiner was going to ask him about other activities that he had, because, you know, he'd been in and out of trouble in his life, and trouble with the law in various ways, and so... I think that's what that was all about. But I, have I've have any of them uh, threatened to write a book, or uh, you know, do they do the conference circuit or any, or any of that? I think uh, I think he said something about wanting to do it, but I don't know. he might have started it and never finished it. It's you know, it's a big project. Mm-hmm. 
of course, you know, I, I don't know what reasons. Uh, none of them ever completed anything like that. But um, they, uh, you know, some of them in the early days uh, uh, actually, you know, come and did interviews with me. And, oh, and, and one of the guys, you know, the youngest guy in the crew, when he when he first saw my first book in which I described the scene of the sheriff coming there and everybody's still shook up and some people are crying. He he was all angry because, you know, it was told that he had cried. And so he came over to my house and he wanted to fight. And uh, so I explained to him, you know, that he wasn't the only one crying and he certainly wasn't the only one scared. All of us were just scared completely out of our minds. So, you know, that he shouldn't feel ashamed about that. But his family did say that he wouldn't go outside at night and he, you know, pretty seriously affected by it for years after that and so I hadn't heard from him in like 30 years and then several months ago he called up and his young daughter was of an age where she was asking questions about it and, and so he wanted me to talk to her so I did and I explained you know that uh, that actually returning that night to try to rescue me was was pretty heroic and you know I made it clear to the little girl that you know his her daddy was a hero and so you know it was kind of good to kind of settle that score after all those years. But, See, I think uh, if that had happened to me once again, I think the situation would have been the guy would have shown up at my door wanting to fight, and I would have just said, I was on a spaceship for five days. Like, <laughs> what do you want from me, asshole? You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, so you're a better man than I am, Travis. Frankly, that's what I get. Well, from this well I'll tell you what I see here. I see, I see the next Paratopia special being a reunion with all the guys in the truck and Travis. That's what I say. That, the logistics of that would be difficult, but that, that might be interesting. Yeah. You know what? So one of the other guys on the crew, I found out here, you know, not too long ago, that he's been going back to the site on the anniversary of the event and camping out alone by himself. What? And you know that just flabbergasted me. You know, it was obvious what his what his thinking was. I said, Ken, you do not want something like this to happen to you. Right. But uh, apparently he he does, and I guess he thought he missed out on something. He can have it. <laughs> oh. Well, that's definitely a recurring theme, isn't it, Jeff, where people always say, you know, God, I wish I had what you guys have. Yeah, sort of yeah. Like, no. I get that a lot, yeah. Be careful what you wish for. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, but you, Travis, would you do that? Would you go out tonight and camp out there by yourself? No way. <laughs> there it is. And I there it is. wish this experience off on anybody except Phil Class, but I guess it's too late for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> he's got his answers now, doesn't he? Yeah, I guess he does. Uh, well, uh, Travis, thank you very much for doing the show and for staying extra long with us. Yes. Uh, we very much appreciate it. And are you? do you have any uh, conferences coming up? Do you have anything that you want to uh, plug Coming up. Oh boy, I got a bunch of them. Uh, they're all listed on my website. Um, finally updated that, except for a couple. There's one in um, Eureka Springs, Ozark, uh, Ozark, uh, Arkansas UFO conference. That's a pretty big one. Mm-hmm. I'll get that on there. And I was been invited to speak at the International UFO Museum in Brazil next year when they wow. have their 10 year celebration. That's great. Travis, thanks a lot very much for uh, for doing this again. And uh, we're sorry that we uh, kept you from 
granddaughter time tonight. Oh, yeah, she wanted <laughs> to play with Grampy, but yeah. I know what I was doing. <laughs> That's okay. All right. Well, uh, good night, guys. Take good care. night, then. Okay. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Ted Phillips, and you're listening to Paratopia. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. Hey, this is Stacy. This is Wes. Be sure to check us out on the Black Fridays podcast. Where we explore the esoteric one conversation at a time. You can check us out at www.theblackfridays.net. It's a little bit freaky. And we will see you there. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO magazine. magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. Eerie Radio, the endeavor for esoteric research and investigation into the enigmatic. Eerie Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Eerie Radio from your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.eerieradio.com. Eerie Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh. So the Jeff. So the Jer. Travis Walton, eh? Travis Walton. He's what you call in the business a get. Yeah, yeah, he was a get. What was he, a year in the making there? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Um. So that was pretty riveting stuff. I mean, I I knew, I think, most of it, except some of the aftermath stuff, probably. Um, anything in there surprise you? Hmm. I think, um, well, I think when I asked him, was there any kind of... I don't know, tandem stuff that had gone on alongside or after the experience that he had that we all know about, uh, such as ghosts, such as any other sort of weirdness. And the fact that he said that he had a discussion, I think, with his wife, uh, that uh, even if he did, he wouldn't talk about it. <laughs> right. 
I'm uh, a little surprised at that. Because to me, that just says, yes. <laughs> you know, that was my thought, anyway. Well, uh, and that's certainly something we've heard from a number of people at this point. Yeah, but I mean, but he also doesn't um, seem to view this thing as supernatural in any in any way, which is, I don't know, that kind of goes against the grain of what our current line of thought has been. I mean, he definitely sees this as, or at least he seems to portray that he thinks that this is a, a flesh and blood, uh, nuts and bolts type of, of thing. Yeah, but he also said he wasn't completely sold that it was alien. Right, right, exactly. Um I don't know. I mean, those kind of things were interesting. I mean, by and large, I, I think what I found really interesting about it is it's not uh, – you could you could very much tell it's not like a canned response to anything. I, I think we've all heard Stanton Friedman by now at least repeat different paragraphs of kind of the same thing. And you would think that somebody like Travis, after having told this story so many times in so many different venues and media outlets, that it would start to get kind of routine – but it doesn't seem that way for him, uh, and he didn't sound that way to me. So I, I found that kind of interesting. Well, what do you make of leaving the ship, what you think is a ship, and going into this hull where there's, or hangar, where there's a whole bunch of ships, and there's nobody there? I mean, does that bother you at all in terms of believing that this is an alien race? Hmm. I mean, shouldn't that place be packed with people? Worker, worker bees, you know, fixing things, or hey, hey, how you doing, Ted, or or whatever. I mean, we we know how hangers work, right? Yeah, well, we know how our hangers work. I don't know, I don't know how that would be if. Uh, I mean, the one thing was, well, the one thing that did kind of surprise me was that he didn't see this as being like an intentional abduction, quote unquote. This was more wrong place, right time, sort of thing. Part of me says, well, if, if they've got uh, somebody that they would consider contraband on on board one of these things and they didn't want them being exposed to too much, but we're going to bring them out, part of me says a lot of people would stay or a lot of people, beings, whatever, would stay out of sight uh, until they got him safely subdued. Uh, that kind of makes sense. And then in another sense, it says that uh, do I believe if you were a fly on the wall that he encountered humans in spacesuits and that sort of thing, is that really a part of what was, if you were a fly on the wall, what was really going on? I don't know. I mean, uh, I question how much uh, of it was fly on the wall real after the little beings had left the room. You know, I, I question what they may have made him perceive or how they would have altered his perception uh, I don't know. So it's, I don't know. I, part of me has to say that the notion of them affecting what you perceive and different scenarios that they made him see all that. And so really it makes no sense except in, in his mind that uh, this is, this is the progression of events as, as it unfolded. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that military witness? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't understand how a military witness sees something like that and his superior officer isn't giving him some instruction on how to proceed. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like either setting him to a shrink or um, saying, oh my God, we got to get that guy into a radiation containment suit. I mean, 
Yeah, biological. Yeah. yeah, didn't he say? Didn't he say that the the officer's reaction was something along the lines of, "Well, don't worry about it. Not our problem." I mean, <laughs> they think they killed him, right? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the other half of it is, you know, the only the only witness to this is military. <laughs> I mean, even if only peripherally involved, I mean, that's still kind of odd. Which. I don't know, almost lends itself a little bit to something that Travis said he couldn't really write off, which was that, you know, it didn't feel like being drugged and told a story or set up in some kind of scenario, but that it felt real and that it seemed real and that other people saw the craft. And I don't know, it, but but having something like that happen almost makes me think, was he drugged and manipulated in some way that, that this is what they maybe they saw this craft and this craft was military of some sort. And so they uh, whacked him out and gave him some kind of suggestion of, of what the events happened. You know, I mean, who knows? I mean, you could extrapolate this forever. I don't know. It seems like a far way to go <laughs> for a military. Well, I, I mean, it depends on how the scenario is set up. I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't know. Uh, uh, I mean, my my thing is, is if if they're going to look at it this way, we know from, I mean, everybody out there should know at this point from the History Channel and other ones that, you know, that the different intelligence agencies have used the UFO thing to cover up black projects to do that kind of thing. So if they're going to foster some kind of or perpetuate some kind of connection to that in league with whatever projects they're developing – then what better a story would there be than to have somebody uh, be picked up by one of these things, disappear for so many days, and then bring them back, and they have this wild tale to tell. And to boot, it's as real as real can be. So any notion of uh, you know lie detector tests or true serums or whatever, these guys saw what they saw. Uh, they saw Travis get whacked to the ground by some kind of discharge from this thing, and Travis has this story of, um, this really bizarre event and that's going to take on, which it has done. It's taken on a life of its own. So, um, you know, at that point, uh, mission accomplished. I mean, they've, they've perpetuated the myth of, uh, of, of this, this connection between an odd craft and, uh, little green men. And therefore now that kind of thing can perpetuate itself over and over and over throughout the UFO lore. Um, you know, and this is all going from the aspect of that this is a concocted event. My only hang up with that is how would they know that this one guy would get out of the truck? How do they know that that how do they know any of them just wouldn't keep barreling down the road in a truck in a in, you know, in a uh, in a truck? Oh well, see, I, I thought you were saying that the military hallucination part would take place after he gets out of the truck. That they they witness what is a real craft. He gets out of the truck. It accidentally smacks him around or something when it lifts off or maybe on purpose. Everybody else takes off. Travis is there. Right. That's the beginning of... Well, that's certainly one way that you could look at it, but you could also look at it from the, the deeper aspect. I mean, it's, I, I, I don't know. It kind of reminds me, like, when we were talking to uh, Rich Dolan many episodes ago, and, um, you know, and he mentions that you know, he talks to these uh, government I don't know informants or contacts that that he has, and and uh, you know most of who, who remain anonymous, but they don't. He says they don't know each other, but they seem to tell a similar story or the same story. And my answer is, well, 
if they're military or they're intelligence or whatever and they're perpetuating a myth, then that myth is going to be well thought out and well planned. And so, of course, those people are going to know the same story because this is the story they've been given to give. In that same context, if you want to further perpetuate some kind of, of uh, mythos around your black projects being connected to aliens from somewhere else, uh, what better way to do it than to than to snag somebody up in front of other people, scare the daylights out of them, um, and then and then do what you will with the participant to get him to have this sort of memory that. Uh, that is as real to him as as anything else. Yeah, I don't buy. You know, I, I don't buy. I'd be just for the very the variables you mentioned. I mean, you can't the you, fact that somebody would get out of the car. I the mean, fact that somebody, yeah, I mean, you don't plan a whole thing like that in the woods for some dudes who who may or may not come barreling down the road. You know, at that right time, not, right? Yeah, may or yeah. may not get out of the car. I mean, no. Yeah, that I don't buy. But uh, you know, I would like to see. I don't know if they've shown on any of these MK Ultra specials on the History Channel or anywhere else. Um, mm. Is there any evidence that they used these mind control things outside of the program? Like, is there any document saying that they've ever, you know, because these things are compartmentalized, right. the CIA, the military, I mean, and everybody clings to their project and everyone's secretive. Is there a cross-pollination between, I mean, there's got to be a document or two out there, right? We just saw a big Twitter leak dump of uh, Afghanistan <laughs> documents. Where's the MK Ultra dump? Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about that really to speak on it. I'm sitting here, you know, kind of tossing this around in my head, and it's like, you know, we say that the guys were coming down <clears throat> the mountain on this this uh, in, in this truck and saw this thing. I mean, we go from a standpoint that 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 is in fact what happened, and we don't really know that. I mean, who knows how far back this thing could have gone or would have gone in order to perpetuate that kind of thing. I just don't think we can rule it out. I mean, I find it a, a little harder to swallow than the obvious notion that this is contact with an unknown, which is what I've always thought it was. Well, in fact, uh, you said something surprising to me, which is that uh, this is the one case where you think it might actually be aliens. Yeah. Now, yeah. Why, why, I, do you, uh, why do you think that? What separates this? I mean, it's the same beings, because right? it's the, the same beings people report. Well, I mean, yeah, to some degree. I mean, you're also talking about that he said they were rather ashen and pale white, you know, that kind of thing. And certainly people see that, but I don't think that's the prevailing. Uh, yeah, but small, big eyes. Sure, sure, yeah. Tall Nordic uh, people, the craft are the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, something about the notion that it's been, as far as we know, again, a one-off. Is kind of is kind of uh, kind of weird to me in that aspect, but I also think uh, I, I don't know. I mean, again, if it's if it's a uh, if it falls in line with the way that this show has been going, you know, being something bigger, being something more complex, being something deeper, then certainly whatever this phenomena is, it would know that doing this would again perpetuate itself into falling in line with the masquerade of sorts. Um, it would certainly be a big story that would kind of deviate you away from thinking that it is something more complex, deeper than little green men from planet X. So I don't, it would be hard to put your finger on, but if, you know, on the face of it, if you look at it, it's a completely, as far as we know, again, it's a one-off event. It, uh, 
uh, it, it certainly involves unknown craft. It certainly involves uh, the, the little guys that we've all come to know and despise, uh, along with the, the you know the host of characters of humans being involved, which is another kind of uh, constant that's that's come up over the years. Is that uh, you know I've met a lot of people who have seen. Uh, Humans, whether they be Nordic, quote unquote Nordic uh, types or not, around these little beings—that's that's a constant that's been brought up time after time, and not through regression therapy, but people people who just remember this directly outright. I don't know. There's something about this story that just you know, if it's a one-off and it's it's it is exactly as described that you have to wonder. You know, is this another one of those instances where? Some craft just was uh, happening by, and and these men stumbled upon it, and something happened. I mean, for all for all we know, Travis was dead, <laughs> and they fixed him. And when they fixed him, he freaked out. He gained consciousness, and everything just seems to everything seems to fit with that kind of a story. Like this is people from somewhere else, and they didn't want to. I guess maybe you could go from the aspect, maybe they didn't want to disturb um, the surroundings. They didn't want to have this encounter, but it happened. And so therefore they cleaned it up with a mop as best they could. I got to say, there's probably <laughs> a, a little clue in in what he had said that might make it a one-off, which is he said he did his best to block it out and yeah. go on with life and immerse himself in normal things. Mm-hmm. Um. Completely the opposite of most people I know who have this type of experience, who want to delve into it more and figure it out more and all that stuff. So, right, maybe he did the George Hansen thing of giving himself structure to block out the anti-structure. I don't right. know. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's a very interesting case, and it's it's very uh... and certainly interesting. You know, uh, the, the he he had the one guy right who he says you know would go out there alone at night trying to get the experience for himself. Right. And you know, I'd almost like to interview that guy just to see if he's had paranormal stuff in his life since trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah, I, there's a you know there's these touches of weirdness throughout this case that definitely speak to the direction we've been going with it. But then you've got other stuff that uh, I don't know that, that that doesn't seem to fit. It's an it's an oddball to me. It really is. Uh, even more so for me than Betty and Barney Hill. It's a lot more oddball than that to me. It, uh, I mean, what I found really interesting was the notion that, I mean, he doesn't really talk to a lot of you know the guys in the truck anymore. I mean, like uh, when we said, you know, you're friends. He said, well, none of them, we weren't really friends. We were coworkers. But yet even all these years later, I mean, for anybody who would argue that this is all nonsense and that it was all garbage and bullshit, but the fact that, one of the guys has what? What did he say? His granddaughter or his daughter? Yeah, his granddaughter. Yeah, his granddaughter called up because she had questions about it, and she he wanted her to talk to me. I mean, I don't know something about that. Just says this is a very, it's a very authentic account, and it's a very, it's one of those things. It's a face value account. It's like this guy doesn't. Uh, like you say, he doesn't read more into it than what it is. He had the experience, he remembers this, and that's it. From what I gathered in talking to him, he certainly is aware of ufology. He's certainly aware of what some people think, just by virtue of having to talk at these conferences and talking to different people. But he doesn't seem to let that really affect him in what his thoughts are about it. 
you know, and I think a lot of people would be ultimately in the search for trying to figure out what it was, what happened, what it's all about. I think most people would be eager to hear what others think and then maybe latch on to some notion that somebody else has if it feels right to them. And, and Travis doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. Like he really doesn't know this is what he knows and that's it. And you're not going to kind of sway him one way or the other in what he thinks based on someone else's perspective. Well, yeah, I get the feeling you know? that he's not um, the kind of guy who cares to sit around in groups and listen to people tell their horseshit right. experiences that must have – I mean, back then, oh. nobody was talking about this type of thing. So it was like right. what people must have come up to him with must have not been worth his time, I imagine, but – so he seems like, um, by his own account, you know, he was involved in helping the UFO researchers he considered respectable to investigate him for, you know, trace evidence of drugs in his body, for instance, or a- anything that would help to prove. It's, it seem, he seems very um, rationally oriented that way. He wants to prove his case or prove the skeptics wrong. He doesn't strike me as somebody who cares to engage the ufo community beyond that no yeah exactly exactly um Um, so he has post-traumatic stress disorder he deals with it he deals with it he goes back to his family and his work and that's it and every now and then he comes out and you know he had a movie made and that's the other thing had a movie made about his life and um and that's when he writes the book to set the record straight to be like no this movie got it wrong actually right right. I i find that fascinating he didn't write a book back when it happened yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I mean, <laughs> like I said, it's it's it, everything about it is an oddball to me. It, and and because it is so oddball, and because it is so one off, and and just because of the way it all unfolded, um, I don't know. To me, it's got the ring of. I mean, I definitely don't. Nobody nobody is going to convince me that Travis is deliberately and, they, and these guys are de- deliberately making up some kind of story. I don't I don't buy that for not for a millisecond. Do I buy that? As far as what exactly happened, I, I don't know. I, you could chop it up six ways from Sunday, but you know, certainly from his perspective, what happened happened, and no one's going to convince him otherwise. And certainly not the men in the truck are going to be convinced otherwise either. It, I mean, for me, it's still one of those, those great unknowns. And, and uh, uh, whether or not what was perceived by him was actually what happened, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think we both talked at length about the ability of whatever this enigma is, the, the ability to affect perception is huge. And so your question about the hangar from earlier and uh, and probably a- any question anyone would have about, uh, you know, why an advanced race of beings would have to wrestle someone down on a table, <laughs> you know? I mean, really, uh, do we wrestle a gorilla down on the table to uh, – <laughs> to, to 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 tranquilize it for uh, some kind of surgery to re- you know, remove a, a benign mass from its uh, shoulder bone. No, we dart it and it's done. <laughs> you know, uh, so you're going to tell me that some advanced race of beings couldn't just go meh and <laughs> down Travis goes like a lump on the floor. I mean, again, there's those weird. Uh, like like beyond things that don't fit about it that, that that just I don't know it's like it's a play it's like it's a play and here's the play and here's the theater of it but it's like you know your continuity expert is a little off their game 
Which rings true with the unknown stuff. You know what I'm saying? It, it rings true with the unknown things. Um, you know, why, why are people still seeing uh, 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 flying saucers land and, and people collecting soil samples? I mean, really? <laughs> that doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you really think about it. And even, you know, in our uh, specialized view on this of, of contact experiences with this thing, whatever it is, Going right from the, 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 you know, what I consider to be largely uh, a, a cultural uh, contamination issue of, yeah, we're going to remove uh, ovum from women and we're going to remove the, the sperm from a man and we're going to do so with tubes and wires and needles. And you're talking about a culture that everyone uh, or most people, I think, the majority uh, opinion is that these things have come from some far-flung galaxy that's light years ahead of us in technology, and yet they're still using needles. <laughs> you know, probably the most invasive, you know, invasive thing that could be done. I mean, those kind of things just don't make any sense to me. But it rings true to the, the notion of the theatrics of it, you know, the the the, the jokester part. So... I'm I'm really on the fence as to where where it goes, but it's certainly an oddball case, and it's certainly fascinating to hear him talk about it. I, I mean, I might say that uh, you know I woke up the next morning from that um, from that interview feeling um, I don't know, like really privileged to have talked to somebody like that uh, who 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 went through such an ordeal, some you know, albeit so many years ago, and has now been kind of put into this mythical status in, in ufology, but still, I mean, I, I was, I felt really, uh, felt really privileged to have had two hours with the guy to be able to pick his brain a little bit about it. So that was great. Yeah. I, I can't imagine what it's like to, to go through that. Um, and then you've got to deal with the police and then you've <laughs> got to deal with, there was a scandal we didn't get into uh, that. I seem to remember with the, like the inquirer, I believe, mm-hmm. you know, that they got involved and then, that was sort of how the skeptics were like, well, if the Inquirer's involved, it's all crap. Right. Uh, so you've got to deal with that. You've got to deal with the skeptics. And then you still got to deal with your life. And then you move on. And finally, someone's going to make a movie about it. And you're in contact with the screenwriter. And she writes it up. And then and then you see the film. <laughs> right. It doesn't reflect <laughs> anything about your life. It's like, yeah. yeah. Not again. It's like double whammy, you know? Yeah, yeah. And yet he seems to be rolling with the punches just fine. He seems to have taken everything in stride, although I guess this is just sort of easy to do when you're looking back on things, probably at the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, especially given the tone of his book. Like I said, it was his book is very much in your face, uh, Phil Class. Really <laughs> more, con- more concerned with proving Phil Class wrong than illustrating right. um, his feelings about what happened to him, which I. Th- I find interesting. Well, I mean, isn't it, doesn't it speak though to kind of like, I don't know, the, the part of it that really is saddening is that someone could have an extraordinary experience like that. And it can be, I mean, completely rewritten and taken away from them. <laughs> I mean, that's isn't that really what society does with so many of these strange experiences well, is that you they just said, it. you, you know, just nailed it. That's what, that's what skeptics are doing. That's what the screenwriter literally did. That's what, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're rewriting your story to take it away from you. Right. Right. So that they feel comfortable. Or in the case of Hollywood, so that they can sell a horror sell novel, it. You know, right. horror exactly. story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's really that's really what happens. And I think that's that speaks to 
the larger issue with ufology in general. It's a, hey, it's not just the media and the skeptics that will do that, but the UFO community itself will do that as well. To me, there are a couple aspects of uh, like the the Gulf Breeze case and and Rendlesham and all of that that there's inaccurate stuff that gets spewed about that all the time by the community that uh, you know by people who just you know hear a story of a story of a story and then it gets mutated and then before you know it it bears little resemblance to what you know is actually documented about this case or that case. I mean that happens all the time. Well, and even you know with Jacobs and and all the uh, hypnotically retrieved stuff. Is oh another, yeah, another version of that. You go to yeah. him for one thing, and you you come out with a whole other story. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just it just becomes. Uh, I mean, again, it it goes from being an experience to some sort of ideology, and that's just how. Um, if I had, if somebody said to me, "How does humanity react the most to uh, the unknown for this kind of thing?" Like, how what is the reaction of people? Which has often been my focus in a lot of stuff years ago was, you know, how are people reacting to this? What is What happens to them? Where do they go with it? That's where they go with it. It, it becomes ideological for them. It, it does. It, the experience is lost in well, that. Well, this is the kind of thing, it's the kind of experience that is in its nature communal. It's not mm-hmm. something you can really keep to yourself. You have to bring this back to the people. And so you bring it back to the people, and if they're open, uh, it's like, oh, wow, neat. Or, yeah. you know, let's Let's look into this, but that's more the Native American way. Our way is more like, oh, no, that, that can't be. That flies in the face of everything we want to know. So right. let's let's shut you up. And it's just weird because, like I said, I mean, the nature of the story is a communal story. And the nature of the community that it is being told to is one that does not want to hear communal stories anymore. Right. It's done yeah. with myth. It's done with higher beings, quote unquote <laughs> higher. It's done with all of that. It just wants to be king of the hill. The end. You know. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate. I mean, that's that's what happens, though. I mean, that's that's the reaction to this kind of stuff. Um, so I can sympathize with with uh, Travis when it comes to. Uh, when it comes to you know having such a profound experience and then. Essentially, it's it's almost taken away from. I mean, it's it's it, it's presented in a theatrical manner in the in the wrong way. It's it's uh, it's because aliens you know, weren't enough. It wasn't enough. Right. That hit by a beam and was on board a ship and saw. Yeah, them, no. that's they not dramatic like, enough. You know, yeah, they had to like cover him in you know cosmic goo. spider webs and goo and yeah, yeah, drag him down a hallway. <laughs> you know, I mean, no, you know, have something going sharp going into his eyeball. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I don't know. I mean, when I watched it, I was like, "Oh Jesus, this isn't anything like what, like what the man actually recounted." Well, I remember. Yeah, we've probably had this discussion. I mean, I saw it. I think um, in the Tottenham Theater with Travis Plager, um, and we had seen Communion, and Communion was, you know, I was, I think, this close to a flashback <laughs> watching <laughs> Communion, and and watching this, it was like, oh, that's scary-ish, but. That's, it's not the same thing. That's not the same thing. Right, right. right. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I think uh, I think communion was, uh, you know, at least met the weird factor part of it pretty well. Um, yeah, you know. Uh, so this, 
I can't, I can't imagine, I can't imagine Travis sitting in the theater watching that, you know, and going, oh yeah, oh wow, they really got that wrong, you know. I yeah, mean, you it, sit through the premiere with like the director oh, and the, oh my God. the actors and everybody, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless beforehand they tell you. I mean, is that hey, guy don't... there who wanted to punch him in the face? Does he want to punch him in the face again? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, unless he was like, well, like, look, Travis, you know, that while your story is amazing, it's, you know, we do have to fluff this for Hollywood. It does have to, it, it does have to be a bit scarier than what it, what it really would, despite the fact that it was, I'm sure, very terrifying for you. Um, it's a little too spacey. We need to. <laughs> We need to Jason it up a little bit. <laughs> so, okay. It reminds I, me uh, of the uh, the SNL skit where the um, where the the sketch artist is sketching the person in front of him and talking to him, and by the time he's done, he's like, "All right, here it is," and then it's just like a stick drawing. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's got yeah. that same feeling. Yeah, yeah. It, I, it, it'd be horrifying, you know. This is how it works, and uh, uh, and certainly we're even still wrestling with this kind of. Of uh, twisted six ways from Sunday now, even in today's day and age with this stuff. So uh, that part shows no sign of slowing down. But I don't know. As as far as his is you know his rude experience, I think it's a, a, a damn interesting case, and um, and it can be the case can be made for any number of answers. But uh, I think it's one of those things. I doubt we're ever going to know the full story. I'd certainly like to if he would ever think about talking about any experience he may have had, you know, post all of this, I would certainly like to know, like, what did you see? What happened is, you know, what's shit. I think, I think it would be just fast. I, I'll tell you what'd be a great movie. The life after the movie, right. <laughs> you know, like how does he go down to the hardware store and buy nails? You know, <laughs> Hey, that's a guy got picked up by the flying saucer right there. I mean, does he look out the corner of his eye and see people talking about him? I mean, that's almost a more interesting story than, than this story. How are you that guy? And that's, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you live with that. Uh, unless at some point the people in your town just come to terms with it and everybody moves on. And, you know, well, this happened to Travis some time ago, and that's the way it is. And I, I don't know. It's just... I think that would make a pretty great movie. That's the movie we should make. There you go. You know. We're on it. Right. Uh, all right. Well, we only have a few minutes left. Um, do you want to tell your uh, story from this week? Or anecdote, really? Uh, anecdote. Uh, I was in the living room and I heard people talking in my guitar room. There it is. And? <laughs> it was two people talking and uh, it sounded... Uh, not distant, and it didn't sound uh, spooky. It sounded like there were two people in the freaking room talking, like in a normal voice, not shouting, not whispering. And I, you know, I got about halfway across the floor and um, and, and listened. And the, I, I mean, I couldn't make out really what was being said, but you could tell it was two distinct, different voices, both male, both definitely of the male persuasion, and. Uh, the only thing I got in word-wise, and I hope I understood it right, uh, I think I heard this right, was that, uh, well, I don't know if we could go that far because that would be illegal. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, definitely wasn't anyone's voice that I recognized, but that's that's what I heard. Once I kind of 
entered into just getting down the hallway to like walk in and say, okay, what the hell is going on? It all just stopped. It, it just really, it just ceased all at once. But it was pretty, I mean, sitting in the living room it was pretty, it was pretty ballsy noise. Uh, it definitely wasn't uh, fleeting or anything like that. I mean, it kept going and I would kind of lean in and I, I am hearing that. And I mute the TV, and I'm like, I am hearing. I mean, I'm Is that someone there? Is someone there? You know, I see you. <laughs> um, now, in fact, I saw nothing. Um, I just heard what sounded like voices. And uh, and you had brought up a good point to me on the phone. You know, was anything playing on the computer? Was the computer on? And no, it was. It was in sleep mode. The hard drive was shut down. The monitor was off. The only thing that was running in this room was the uh, overhead ceiling fan, which is in every goddamn room in the house. That was the only thing actually running. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to make of that. Just another one of those stupid things you can't put in a box, I guess. So, but it was, it was, but like I said, it was pretty clear. It was pretty loud, but it wasn't. I I don't know if I could have made out what was being said by sitting in the fart chair. I actually had to get up and kind of get closer, but it was. It was weird. I mean, it wasn't. You had asked me, was it mechanical voice sounding? Did it sound radioish or anything like? No, it sounded like people. And I think I mentioned this, Steve. And if I didn't, you know, this is. It's been kind of a constant back in this area of the house that I've seen weird stuff. I mean, the the story about seeing my wife uh, in the hallway. Uh, I talked about before. Well, I can't remember what day it was, but. Uh, I'm rehearsing stuff for, for band rehearsal, and I'm up kind of late. And um, I'm getting a lot of the, you know, sitting on my guitar stool, playing. Not loud. It's not loud. It's, it's uh, you know, it's 2, 3 a.m., and it's, you know, i got to keep the volume down to just something that is enough for me to hear. And, uh, you know, and I get the head kind of peeking around the corner. Uh, stuff around the edge of the door frame stuff, but you look up and there's nothing there, but you definitely see something moving out of the corner of your eye uh, sitting in the living room. If I'm on the couch and I'm looking down the hallway towards this room again, I get like movement uh, in, in the hallway. Even if the hallway light is on, I see movement out of my peripheral in that area. Like there's something solid there. Um, uh, Color, dark, darkish color. You look and there's nothing there. Uh, and, uh, and, and my wife's mentioned it, uh, and even my son has mentioned it to some degree, that um, you know, this hallway just seems to have some kind of something going on, but I don't know what. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not of this opinion anymore that it's... Uh, uh, that it's the house or that it's, you know, it's, I think it's definitely something to do with, you know, the amount of attention that, that I pay to all this stuff. So, um, I don't think you go from a, a condominium that is potentially inhabited by something else to a house that's potentially <laughs> inhabited by something else too. I, I don't know if I'm buying that. That's it. That's just, that's just the latest thing. But by and large, I'd say it's been fairly quiet. Pretty good. Uh, I too had an experience of sorts, but I'm going to save it for the next episode. I have um, oh. somehow talked Jeff into next week uh, just doing a me and him episode because um, I think I've well, I won't say I've solved. I think 
I want to piece together some things that I've figured out, and maybe they've already been figured out, and I'm just late to the game figuring them out, uh, about hypnosis, about why artists um, are more awake to this stuff, seemingly, um, about the subconscious mind, and about pulling stuff into the room via DMT, via dreams, via hallucination, and all that sort of stuff. I got a lot to say, so uh, instead of me just monologuing about it, uh, I thought it would be probably more beneficial to all that I I bounce uh, these ideas off of the Jeffrey. Yeah. And you finally agreed. Well, the the part that bothers me about that is you say that there's potentially dangerous stuff in here. (laughs) Well, no, you know what's funny is, as I was thinking it, I was like, I I realized I, I wrote it in the book you know, my new book, you know, the book that's not released yet. Right. Um, I, I did write it in there and I think I did put a little warning about, you know, some of the stuff, maybe I don't even know if should be said out loud, but that's just because that then assumes that maybe someone would take it and run with it and try to do experiments, but oh. I think, you know, in the government or the military or something, but I don't think they will because um, either they figured it out or they, they don't, they're not paying attention to me. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's the dangerous part. It's well, not like yeah. You know. I mean, I think there's a da- I think there's a dangerous part when you talk about why magic works, and when you okay. really get down to the the fine points of uh, what it means this the separation versus oneness thing. Um, I mean, can you abuse? Is there a power there that that you can abuse? And I think there is, and but probably. People are abusing it already. Probably people oh, okay. either they figured it out or or they don't know how it works still, but they're abusing it anyway. So I don't know that I'll be adding anything that's more I don't know harmful than that's already out there. Okay, all right. Or and of course you can always fall back on that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, so, and that I'm just completely wrong to begin with. So there's that. There you yeah. Go. <laughs> well, I look forward to that discussion. <laughs> yes. The end. Wah, 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 wah. Let's go to bed, shall we? Separate beds this time. Oh, Jesus Christ.